Good morning, Christchurch, Turnham Green. Good, good. For those I haven't met yet, uh, I'm Dennis. I'm curate here. It'll be good to catch up with a coffee. Today is our second Sunday of a four-part series on the book of Jonah. So what's happened so far? Well, we looked last week with Richard's help at how God had asked Jonah to go and preach in the big city in the east. And how Jonah had decided to head west to an exotic place roughly three times the distance he had been asked to go, but in the opposite direction. It was his place of escape. We looked at how once on a boat heading west, God sent a storm on the sea which halted the progress. And while the sailors panicked, even throwing all the cargo overboard, Jonah slept in the bows of the ship. We stopped at the point where even after discovering that it was all Jonah's fault, the sailors did not want to throw him overboard. They were afraid of being judged as murderers by the God who had command over the wind and the waves. Jonah's presence had made believers out of these sailors. In the end, Jonah's request with the assurance of God's mercy, the sailors threw him overboard and the sea became calm. God doesn't leave disobedient Jonah to die. He sends a big whale, big fish, to swallow him up and keep him alive. This is where we start our chapter today, in this dark place, because whale bellies don't have lampshades. It is this dark place, down deep in the water, not on the land before he runs away, or on the ship when the storm hits, or even as his feet touch the water he was about to potentially drown in. Not in any of these places, does Jonah pray, but here in this chapter, here in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays. And this is our focus for today, the prayer from the dark fish belly. A question quickly emerges when this chapter starts, and that's this. Why pray now? Why not earlier? Well, maybe he's just stubborn. Maybe he just finds it hard to choose the right things. Or maybe he's just too stupid to put two and two and connect his situation with the God he knows. If that's the case, then there's hope for those of us who are like him or anywhere close to him on the scale. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Which brings me to the first point. It's never, ever too late to start to pray. It's never too late to pray. We worship a God who is forever with his ear leaning in and his arms open like the good father in the prodigal son story. He waits looking up at the horizon to see the silhouette of his returning child appear so that he may lift his dress, gird his loins and shamelessly run to embrace the child. So if you've never prayed or if you feel like you're not good enough to pray or that God won't hear you pray now because you didn't pray earlier, Enter with Jonah into the freedom of knowing that God doesn't count those things against you. If Mr. Stubborn could be heard from the belly of a fish, then your voice, coming from wherever you feel least glamorous, will be heard by Mr. I will fish you with a fish. And here's a fun fact. The whale was the first official fisher of men, not Peter. It's never too late to pray. No place is too bad to pray from. A very important phrase stood out in one of the resources Richard gave me to think through Jonah 2. And the phrase was this, the only way back up is the way down. 
It's very punchy and useful in thinking through what's happening so far. On the land, he could set sail east. In the storm, he could escape to the bow of the ship and sleep. When confronted by the sailors, he could escape the ship into the water. And perhaps maybe thinking he could escape the task before him that God had set. And escape the God who had set that task by losing his life in the waters. Jonah thought he'd jump out the boat and escape God. But now in the belly of the fish, there's nowhere to run. He's confronted square on by his inadequacy, his powerlessness, and actually the real depth of God's love. But why is God's love a thing to escape? Well, because it confirms, I think, our biggest fear. That we're not enough to sustain ourselves. We're not as powerful as we think. But I hope I'm speaking to people who don't want to run away, but are wondering how to ensure that they don't end up like Jonah. Right? Right? So I've amended the phrase to reflect our desire to stay godly. It goes like this. The only way up is down. The only way up is down. Let's look at what happens to Jonah at this point. God says, go this way. He goes that way. He gets in the ship to sail away, but God sends a storm. So Jonah gets into the bow of the ship and sleeps. He goes low. The sailors come and wake him up. They bring him back up. But to avoid talking to God... Jonah asks to be thrown overboard and sinks into the sea. He goes lower. He's swallowed by a fish and is in its stomach, lower than, the, lower than he, where he was before, but with a stench of fish and powerless to do anything about it. There are no more choices. He's low, now less than a man. He's actually fish food, not the famous ice cream variety, the stinky kind. The height of Jonah's disobedience is actually quite low. What does Jonah do? Well, he gets low. He, gets, he lets go of his self-imposed silent treatment of God and says something. But he doesn't just say something. He begins to confess who he is and where he is. He goes low before God. Not the prideful chin-up of false dignity, but the real kind of confession, the this is who I am as I am. And in fact, I still am alive because of you. Look at his prayers. It was in the deep place of, dead, of the dead. It was deep down in its waters. I had almost drowned in the waves. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank down to the bottom of the mountains and thought I had died and gone down to the grave forever. I should have been dead, but you sent the fish. The height of my disobedience had actually left me really low. To understand the grace of God in this, Actually, how God is lower than Jonah's disobedience. I'm just going to roughly refer to Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5 to 8, which talks about the humility of Christ, who, though being God, humbles himself, becomes less, considers himself nothing, takes the nature of a servant, and is made like man in appearance. 
in obedience, he becomes an innocently condemned man, which is actually worse than being a correctly condemned man. And then he becomes a dead man who faced the shame of rejection by his people before being killed half naked and put on display. And then he's buried. And our creed says he descended to the dead. So actually, as low as Jonah gets, Jesus has gone much lower. The only way up for Jonah is to actually fall into the arms of the God who has placed himself at the lowest point that our disobedience could take us. The only way back up for Jonah is down into the arms that can lift him. That can lift him. Jonah doesn't die, but Jesus does. The height of disobedience is really low, but the depth of love is lower. How do we know the God we meet in Jesus is the same God in this story? Look at verse 6, which is a kind of turning point in the chapter. I thought I had died and gone down to the grave forever. And there's a stop. To the roots of the mountains I sank, it says in the version there. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Full stop. The next word, but. But you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Not with a rope from above that I had to cling onto to be saved, but with the gentle hands from beneath. I am raised, nestled in love, and swaddled, swaddled by grace. You are the one who saves. So if, like Jonah, you are down, the only way back up is into his arms. And if you don't want to be like Jonah, guess what? The only way up is still down into his arms. Whatever height we think our disobedience will take us is still low because disobedience only leads to death. And that's the lesson of Scripture. True for Jonah, true for the Ninevites, true for us. The wages of sin is death. But what do we learn from Jesus? We're not somehow outside of sin to begin with so that we can avoid the depths that it's trying to drag us in. No, quite on the contrary, we all will die. Surprise, surprise. Even if we went to heaven directly, we will no longer be as we are. Life, our life as we know it, will come to an end. Therefore, redemption is redemption, and the path to eternal life has only one bus, the R1, resurrection one, the resurrection express. How do you get on? Well, you die. The only way up is actually down. But this death I'm speaking of is the surrendering of our lives to the one who has taken the sting out of sin's wages. So whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This kind of death is the kneeling at the cross before the one whose love brought him lower than himself. Low enough that he could pick us up from whatever depths we threw ourselves we threw ourselves into. Like with baptism. Don't miss the symbolism of going beneath the water, both in Jonah and Jesus. Like with baptism, the only way to righteousness is humility. If you want to be generous, you have to die to greed and selfishness. If you want to be positively proud even, 
You have to die to false humility and self-deception. If you want to be close to God, you have to die to self-reliance. Get into the whale's belly before you are called to action. And you will miss the storm of correction altogether. And if a storm of life does come, it only drives you into the belly of the whale, which is a familiar place where you already regularly meet with God. This is the thing about going up by going down. When you go down, you fall into the arms of love and away from the chains of social standing or the need for acceptance. Going down, you fall into the arms of love and away from the chains of pride and self-reliance or the negative judgment of others that doesn't have compassion as textured as a texture, like salt and pepper over it. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he has judged the Ninevites correctly, but is without compassion for them. And because he knows God as one who is compassionate, Jonah knows the consequences of his action will be grace towards the Ninevites, a grace that he doesn't desire for them. For me, the important part of this chapter is that Jonah doesn't talk to God until Tarshish is taken away from him. Instead of being honest with God from the beginning, hey, you're not going to save these guys, so I'm not going to go. Jonah doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. He just goes away. He turns and goes somewhere, somewhere else. He has another option in his mind. Had he spoken to God at the beginning, this book would have gone a different way, I think. Which is why I'm saying, get into the whale's belly before you're called into action, and you will miss the storm of correction altogether. How do I know this? Well, Jesus sleeps through a storm. But that is the slumber of a faithful man who found seclusion to meet with his father regularly. It is the peace in slumber that defies understanding and is in contradiction to its circumstance. Not an escape but a trusting in God so that when Jesus is woken up by those in the boat with him, it's not to ask to be thrown overboard, but to demonstrate the exact same power that calms the storm in the story of Jonah. The powerless Jonah sleeps to escape. Jesus sleeps to demonstrate God's power. The storm for Jesus didn't interrupt his peace, but for Jonah, it was the rod of correction. He stepped out. Jesus, Jesus stepped out regularly and prayed to his father. Get into the whale's belly before you're called into action and you will miss the storm of correction. The only way up is down, down on our knees before the cross. If Jonah knew himself as one to grace that was being offered to the Ninevites, sustained him. And to actively deny to actively deny that judgment and grace to others was to refuse it for himself. If he knew the depths of God's love for him, which I don't think he gets by the end of the book, he would have been the one to ask God to show him where to go next to preach salvation. He would have been eager to go and tell the people to turn to God for their salvation, for their lives to be changed. If he had gone low, he would be up. And the storm that corrected him would have, like Peter, provided the waves of faith and not the rod. So where is your whale's belly? Where is the place of honest confession before God? 
where people and things don't matter? Where, where do you go to get low and practice resting in God's love and practice surrender? Where do you go to catch the Resurrection Express, the R1? Jonah's prayer in this chapter is a mishmash of scriptures. Jonah knew God's word, and at his darkest, it gave him what to say. Maybe practicing surrender for us may look like devoting some time to reading the scriptures, or even just daily saying the Lord's Prayer, which is just a thing to remember like a crutch. Don't envy the house of sand, Tarshish. Yield to wisdom, go low. Build your house upon rock. Pray so that storms may come and go and never erode the truth that you stand on. When he's spat out by our fish, Jonah is back to square one and is sent to do the exact same thing that he was sent to do the first time around. The difference between the end of this chapter and the beginning of this chapter is the time he spent in the whale's belly talking to his God. It's never too late to pray. No place is too bad to pray from. The only way up is down into the arms of love. Save yourself the drama. Find and love the whale's belly in your life. And give that whale a bellyache. Amen.